Well, according to C.S. Lewis, there are two equal and opposite misconceptions. People can fall into, when speaking of Satan, when speaking of the devil, um, the first end is just a clear disbelief. A disbelief that says, I don't believe Satan exists. Point blank. But another side of the spectrum is a belief that Satan does exist. But this belief conjures up an excessive, unhealthy fascination for the devil himself, for darkness, for magic. C.S. Lewis writes, the devils, the demons are equally satisfied with both of these errors since they are just as pleased to welcome a materialist or magician with the same delight. Well, we've seen these sides of the spectrum affect us, impact how we view the supernatural, how we view the devil. And influenced by the Age of Reason, the Enlightenment era, many of us, if we were to see a, a man out on the street corner, uh, looked maybe um, out of his mind, could be uh, struggling with alcohol, or we were to say, well, he's maybe just missed his meds. Um, we just dismiss it as hogwash. Perhaps um, it's just a mental or clinical issue. Or we can swing to the other side of the pendulum. We become enamored. We become enamored with magic. We become enamored with dark tales, the oddity, or the supernatural. We read books about it. We see movies of it. And um, it just so captivates us that, that we even celebrate it. I remember several years ago um, when I was pastoring at a church in Miami, I was getting ready for a prayer gathering when um, all of a sudden as I stepped uh, over to the front door of the building, um, I, I see what is a coconut with some beads around it. These were colorful beads. It, it was nicely and well put together. And inside it, I, I, I noticed as I opened it that, that there were several spices. It was placed right in front of our door. And, um, and I knew where that was coming from. So we had a babalu or Babalao, uh, a Santeria priest who was just living two blocks away from the church. And this was his way of, 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 of calling out to his God on behalf of the people who were approaching him for supernatural power. This also wasn't the first sacrifice or offering up to his God that we had seen at our church. So I figured... Let me take it. I took it, and I actually took it inside the prayer gathering we were having. Well, the minute I brought it in, thinking this would be a great example of one, reminder, we need to keep praying for our community. We need to keep praying for our neighbor. This young man approached me and, and, and said, can, can I look at that? And he was mesmerized and, and taken back by by, by, by the idea that a prayer could be contained in this, 
in this coconut shell. And it's just how well it was put together. He, he started asking questions about Santeria until an older lady came from behind and said, Mijo, eso no tiene nada. That has no power. You see that coconut? You see those beads? What's inside it? My creator made that coconut. He made those beads. Those spices come from his very nature. And that creator is Jesus Christ. And she began telling of how Jesus had changed her life. I actually found out that very same day that she, too, was a priest in Santeria years ago. As we open up the scriptures this morning to Mark chapter 5, I want us to ourselves look at not only this portion of scripture, but really ask ourselves, how does seeing Jesus as the Son of God, one, affect our view of Satan and the demonic? Okay, And then second, how does seeing Jesus as the Son of God compel us to live in response to his liberating power? Okay. As we open up Mark chapter 5, he's going to be showing us how Jesus is a powerful deliverer over demonic oppression. See, Mark at this point has been laying out for us rather quickly in his gospel an account of who Jesus is and of his gospel ministry. He's clearly depicting him as fully God and fully man. And so in the first chapter, if we were to open there, just backtracking a little bit, you would see Jesus comes into the scene and he does it with this, with these words. He says, I've come to usher in a new kingdom. Repent and believe. And this message of salvation, this very gospel, contains not only a message of deliverance from oppression, from darkness, but it's a message of deliverance that's contained in his very person. It's actually his very essence. And this message began rubbing up the wrong way with religious leaders. See, the religious leaders thought that they needed to be self-righteous enough, adhering to the, most, to, to the Mosaic law and the tradition of the time, to say, well, the way you are right with God is through these laws. And this is what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots taught. And so when Jesus came and he began preaching this message with all authority about himself, that religion itself could not save you, that was like a cold bucket of water on a cold day to the religious folks. But Jesus didn't just preach the gospel. He displayed it. He displayed it with his lips, with his hands, with his feet. And so he, he healed the sick, the lepers, the blind, the paralytic. There was actually a demon-possessed man in the synagogue that we read up in chapter 2, how Jesus healed him too. And he even lovingly ate and had time that he spent with sinners, befriending them and forgiving them of their sins. 
But as we start approaching chapter 5, towards the tail end of chapter 4, Mark decides to make sure we get a clear view of who Jesus is and his power, his authority. And he gives us a four-part story series, and and in this four-part story series, we're going to be looking at the second story, because the first story spoke of how Jesus was powerful over creation. As a matter of fact, if we were to take, if we were to just glance back a few verses, we would read that there was a great storm. And as Jesus and his disciples were in the boat, there in the Sea of Galilee, this, this storm got so bad that, that they literally, many of them being ex-fishermen, thought they were going to die. So we're not talking about two, three-foot waves. We're talking about a tumultuous, perhaps hurricane-type storm. And this is happening right before their eyes in the boat they're in. Well, what is Jesus doing at this time? Jesus is sleeping. Jesus is sleeping on the stern, and Mark tells us he's sleeping on a cushion. (laughs) So he's comfortable. He's not waking up in the middle of his sleep saying, what's going on? As the creator of the world, he's napping in the midst of the storm. Showing us he's clearly God, God of creation, but yet fully human, needing to rest. And so the disciples approach him and say, teacher, do you not care that we're dying here? I mean, those were their words. We don't know if it was Peter. We don't know if it was John. You know, we don't even know if it was Matthew who had just been picked up from, by, by, by Jesus to follow him. But they basically said, Jesus, do, do you not care? Or as one of our teenagers to say, really? Like Jesus? <laughs> and the Bible tells us that he got up, perhaps stepped over some, some water, which we're sure was already coming into the boat, and he told, he spoke to the storm, and he said, silence, be still. Now these words, silence, be still, can literally be translated, be quiet and stay quiet. Almost like a father would speak to a little child who was, who was making noise and causing commotion. Be still and stay still. Jesus was exercising his rule and lordship over creation. And this provoked the disciples, according to what Mark tells us, to ask who? <laughs> You know, as, as the wind died down and, and, and as the water just became glassy, they asked themselves, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. See, the disciples still had not put all the pieces together. They were following Jesus. They were with him. But they were about to get their answer. But it would come from a very unlikely source. It would come from a demon. Mark chapter 5, read with me if you have your Bibles. If you don't, there's some in front of you, um, and it's also going to be shown in the overhead. 
They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. We see Jesus here encountering the demonic. Jesus and his disciples land their boat on the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And this is a Gentile region. Uh, a region called the Capitalist. And the reason why it's called the Capitalist is because of the ten city-states. As Jesus lands with his disciples in this area, the district of the Gerasenes, a small town, some archaeologists would say, is Gadara. Jesus is met immediately by a demon-possessed man. And this demon-possessed man didn't come out of his tidy little home. He came out of the cemetery. Well, this is no Rose Hill, and it wasn't even a Calvary Cemetery over by Rogers Park, Evanston. Uh, it wasn't a real nice hole that he probably came out of. See, back then, the cemeteries were, were not as nicely as we have them now, uh, where you're able to have a, a concrete hole uh, with a seal or or even a mausoleum where you nicely put bodies of loved ones in. You close the door lid, and once you shut it, you put all weatherproof sealant from Lowe's or Home Depot. The cemeteries back then were different. Cemeteries back then uh, were, were, were basically caves, mountains that were carved out as tombs and and you would put your dead loved ones in there. Um, they would have to be closed off because of the stench. And that would normally happen with a big boulder or a big rock. Well, this man lived amongst the dead in the cemetery. That's where he made his home. He had been rejected by the people. And now living with a demonic possession, that's what he called living. But he was unclean, Mark tells us, not only because he lived among the tombs, but also because he was possessed by an unclean spirit. Meaning, the demons had literally swallowed him up. They had taken control of him and had caused him to do unusual things. And supernatural things. Some of those we read here, he was uncontrollable. No one could, could bind him up. No one could, could hold him anymore. In other words, they had tried over and over and over again and to no success. Apparently, when they tried to bind him, they, they tried using chains and, 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 and he would just break them apart like, like they were Lego chains. I mean, that's what we're reading here. It's a, it's a very descriptive way of, 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 of the writer saying he had supernatural strength. 
he had supernatural strength. And Luke would tell us in his account of the story in the Gospel of Luke that he walked around and lived naked. No clothing. And then maybe you pick this up, but did you notice how he lived? He lived in constant torment. Constant. Day and night. And in other words, he had no rest from his despair. That's all he knew, day and night. Cut him himself, crying out in anguish. Commentators have noticed that it seemed like the cutting was the man's way of dealing with his misery by actually trying to kill himself. So things had gotten so bad for this man that he was desiring and wishing to end his life. What happens next that Jesus not only confronts the demoniac, but Jesus defeats the demonic. And look at how he does it. The demonic comes rushing up at Jesus, and instead of attacking Jesus, what does he do? He falls down at the feet of Jesus. Friend, it's not because Jesus was wearing a sword that he fell down. It wasn't because Jesus had a, 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 a military Roman title, a position that gave him authority. It was just the very presence of God being made manifested in Jesus. And as this demoniac came to him, he didn't attack him. He fell down. And he called him. Jesus, you're the son of the most high God. The demon recognized who Jesus was. Nobody up until now in Mark had recognized that Jesus was the son of God. They had seen him do miracles. They had seen him teach with all authority. He had this message that was transforming lives and he was calling people to himself. But there were, nobody had yet put the pieces together. But the demon knew who Jesus was. God made man. And that Jesus being fully divine had the power to torture eternally demons. Let me pause here. Did, did, did you know that demons are not atheists. They believe in God. As a matter of fact, they not only believe that God exists in the person of Jesus, the Son, but demons also have real good doctrine. They know the Bible. They know it. From front to back. And they know what awaits them. And they know who it is that they're awaiting it from. They await judgment. So there's no war or battle here between Jesus and the demons. There's no wrestling of, of you know, Jesus pinning down and doing a chicken wing on, on the demon. The demon just recognizes as Jesus, the Son of God. 
And then, I love this, he pleads. He begs. He says, Jesus, do not torment me. I love it. There's, there's, there, there is no like, Jesus, you know, maybe if you can do this, I'll do that. Or Jesus, you know, let, let, let me, let me try to, no. They just automatically know what awaits them. And they beg. They beg. So Jesus responds to the begging of the demon with a question. And he says, what's your name? Now, Jesus already knew the demon's name. You know, it, it, it's, it's not like Jesus, you know, as the son of God, had, had, had forgotten the demon's name or, 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 or didn't know exactly what was happening. But Jesus wanted us to see just how bad the extent of the demonic man was, how serious the issue was. And so the demon replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now this word Legion is a Roman military term that was used to, to describe a group of soldiers numbering from about 5,000 to 6,000, according to historians. In other words, what, what, what the demon was saying as he was saying, my name is Legion, is Jesus, I'm not just one Legion or one demon. I'm not just one or two demons. Jesus, I'm an entire legion of demons. In other words, inside this man, we are thousands. And I represent them. But these demons knew who they were dealing with. And that's why they kept begging Jesus not to torment them. Look what they say. Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, some may wonder, well, why the pigs? You know, why, why did the pigs end up drowning? And, and why did they drown in the Sea of Galilee? Like, is there any symbolism here that Jesus is trying to, or, or, or a message that Jesus is trying to convey here? And the, 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 the answer is yes. Jesus here is being very purposeful about the imagery he's giving. Because he's giving us a cosmic sneak peek of what will happen to Satan and his demonic forces. See, Satan is a murderer. That's what he lives for. He lives to, to kill. He, and if he could not have the man, he will take the pigs. Satan lives to destroy lives. Jesus said of him that he was a murderer in John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And because Satan is a murderer and a liar, he will one day be judged by Christ. And he and his demonic forces will be destroyed for eternity. Now let me explain something. The Sea of Galilee was seen by many locals back then as the abyss or as the abode of the death. And so that's where the spirits dwelt. 
The bodies, they were in the cemetery. At the Sea of Galilee. Jesus uses this imagery to communicate that this will be the fate of Satan forever. Jesus will send them to eternal damnation and he will leave them there for eternal punishment. In Revelation 20.10, the scriptures tell us that the devil who had deceived many will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus is powerful in his justice. Now, before we move on uh, to the rest of the story in Mark chapter 5, I think it's good to, to take a pause and ask ourselves, how do we connect? You know, how do we connect with these, these characters? We're, we're certainly not Jesus, right? There's only one Jesus. But how do we, com- how do we connect to this demon-possessed man. I want us to find a parallel between the demoniac and us. And this is the reason why I want to suggest to you this morning that the demon-possessed man is a picture of the plight of man. He's a picture of the plight of man. That without Christ, you are controlled by Satan. I don't know if you knew that. But without Christ, your life is a slave. You're one to be controlled by Satan and his demonic forces. You're a slave to sin and condemned to eternal torment and damnation. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, if you got your Bibles with me. Because Paul lays this out for us. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is the reality of all who are without Christ. This is their position. This is how life is lived. We are all dead men and women walking and living in our sin. But there's good news. And that's why I love the rest of Ephesians. Because it doesn't just stop there in that chapter. The Apostle Paul says, yes, this is who you were. And this is who you are in Christ. You are, you have a dictator over you and that's Satan. You have a drive within you. A cancer, a spiritual cancer within you that is disrupting you. And that is defacing and distorting the image of God. And is leading you to death. And that is sin. And we're all born in sin. And in our blindness, we follow Satan and we don't even know it. This is what life without Christ looks like. But then he says, but God. He completes the good news. 
But God, but God loves to step into dying places. He loves to step into dark places. And he says, and look at what God does to the Christ. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Guys, what a contrast. You know, because of God's mercy, he's not poor in mercy. He is rich. He is wealthy in mercy and in grace. He has great love. And he loves to display that love through Christ over us. That even when we were dead, a dead person does not see. A dead person doesn't talk. A dead person doesn't hear. A dead person doesn't say, Jesus, I need you. A dead person is dead. There's no life. They're cold. He made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, we're saved. Christ is a powerful deliverer, church. Who brings us up out of darkness, out of our helpless state. Our slavery to sin, our brokenness, our distorted view of God and even ourselves. Back to how God intended us to live. Fully restoring us into a new life of peace and freedom. Now, what, what, what happens here is, is very interesting because let's, let's jump to verse 14. It tells us here that the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country what had happened. In other words, they, 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 they gave a complaint. They gave a report of what had happened to this man. And we don't know him by name, but we can call him Brian or, 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 or Jose or whatever you'd like to, to name him. But they go and, and, and apparently they, they, they start telling the townspeople that they lost also their business. <laughs> you know, they, this demoniac, you remember him? You know, he, man, he was a pain to be around. We tried to hold that man down, couldn't. He was disrupting our businesses. He was disrupting our families. We put him out in the cemetery. But this Jesus, listen, you want to know what happened to our business? The demoniac was bad enough. This Jesus, we never heard of him. We lost 2,000 pigs. And what do they find when they come back from giving the report? And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus. Look at this. They saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion. What was he doing? He was sitting there. He was clothed and in his right mind. This is what the gospel does. The man who had been wreaking havoc was all of a sudden unrecognizable. That, that, that Brian, the drunk man who, who was on the corner, who, who almost shot up my neighbor the other night. You know that I... I, I you know, why is he still around in this neighborhood? 
that man was sitting there by Jesus' feet in his right mind. Jose, the one who kept cheating on his wife, and, 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 and the one who, 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 let's not even talk about how he's cheating the business and overworking his, 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 uh, his workers. That Jose, the one that you would never thought would change, was sitting there clothed at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus composed. And how did the crowd respond? Well, apparently the crowd responded in fear. Now, it wasn't a fear of, we're going to start biting our nails because we don't know what's going on. But it was a sense of fear of, even though they weren't celebrating, nor there was a revival, they were struck in awe at the might of Jesus. They couldn't believe it. This is how strong God is. And this morning, I think as we keep reading, we're going to start noticing there's two ways to respond to Jesus and His power as deliverer. The first way so we can respond like the crowd. We can actually beg Jesus to leave. Or we can beg to follow him while he still has something best for us. The crowd decided it was best for Jesus to leave. And that's what the townspeople did. They, it says here in verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them after they they gave a report what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. You see, this, this fear of, of seeing God's awesomeness and the power of Jesus revealed all of a sudden turned into another type of fear. It was a fear that said, wait a second, <laughs> Jesus has now become a great threat to our livelihood. I don't, I don't know if this Jesus is going to help us economically. Look what he just did. <laughs> he, he took poor, poor Robert's, uh, and, 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 and Maria's, uh, you know, uh, business away. <laughs> their profit, their livelihood. I don't know if we can have that Jesus here. This is what the power of God does through this God man, restoring back a man who had learned to stay that we learned to stay away from and and have our town suffer a great loss of property because of him but then leave the risk was too great for the people and it was because they valued what they had most the truth is the townspeople preferred pigs over people swine over souls. And it came down again to what they valued most. Now for us, it, it really gets down to what we too value most, doesn't it? It could be a title. It could be a business. I mean, call it what you want to call it. It, it. it could be a relationship or a newfound lover. We don't want him or her to get disturbed or, or offended. 
If this is what it means to behold Jesus and, and follow Him. Or the life that you think He's going to make uncomfortable or change. For Jesus is not a God of putting into a box. He moves things around. His glory, as we've heard, is weighty. That or your very soul. What do you value most? Well, the healed man, verse 18, look at his response. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends, Jesus told him. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. In other words, go home and testify to what I've done. Testify to, to, to those that you already know, to your family, to your friends, to, to those that you haven't seen in years, that they thought you were a lost case. Go. This is what it means to follow me. Go and tell them of how I didn't leave you where you were, how you received mercy and were made new. And the scriptures tell us that the man went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone was left marveled. You know, when our kids were, were younger, they would do a lot of show and tell. Um, now our kids are older. Our youngest, Aiden, he's 12. Um, here he is. You know, he's no longer doing show and tell at, at school. But I remember, you know, our, our kids when they were younger. And um, they loved to show off what they loved. You know, the teacher would, would, would ask them, you know, um, Bring something that you hold real dear. And as you bring it, just be ready to share with the class um, why it's dear to you. It's that simple. Now, remember, our kids sometimes bring in a teddy bear or, you know, certain toys that they had. And I remember them being excited to do a show and tell. In other words, it wasn't something that they were dreading. It was something that came natural. It was something that as they looked at what the object was, it boiled up, it swelled up within them a desire to tell not only a description of the object, but really why it was so dear to them. Brother and sister, Jesus calls us to do the same. And it's a show and tell too. I mean, imagine if the demon-possessed man stepped into our room this morning and he would finish this sermon by telling you a show and tell of who he was prior to Jesus saving him and who he was now. You know, he would, he would probably roll up his sleeves and show you all the cuts he had. 
he would probably tell you, this is, this is as many times as I tried killing myself. And it wasn't because I was, <laughs> I was, I was clumsy that I was stumbling over rocks. I tried killing myself. The torment was night and day. Or maybe he would tell us about how each night and each day really was filled with anxiety and desperation. A sense of utter depravity where even when he looked outside and the sun was out, it was still dark in his life. But how that one day, he may not recall the exact day of the week, but, but how that one day when Jesus and his disciples came, as he saw the boat come in, he didn't know who they were, but all of a sudden, involuntary, he was led by this demon. He fell at his feet of Jesus, and all he could do was look up and, and remember dimly the face of Jesus. And maybe for the first time, he would tell us how he noticed the demons, something he hadn't noticed before. They were scared. Now it was the other way. No longer was Others, Jesus scared of him. The demons were now afraid. Maybe he would tell us about how Jesus just spoke a word. <laughs> Jesus is a good prophet. <laughs> He's the better prophet. He just spoke the word. He said, what is your name? And he casted him out. And he would probably say, Man, from that point on, all hell broke loose. <laughs> all hell within me, I thought, was breaking loose. I mean, imagine what this man's story would be like in front of us. How maybe he went back home and maybe his marriage was reconciled if he was married. Maybe his children were able to see him again and, and, actually, and actually recall his face, the man who used to play with them who no longer was enticed by, by alcohol and drugs and, and overachieving at work. And, but actually, he was the man who, who loved them and was willing to be with them. A man restored back to how God had created him to be. And it was all because of the man Jesus. I'm sure that if he would stand up here this morning, he wouldn't say, oh, just believe in God. No, I need to tell you, you need to believe in Jesus. It's not just God and, and the supernatural. I can tell you of someone who has actually overcome the demonic. And that person is Jesus. Jesus, the Christ. You know, church, we too have a show and tell. You have a story to tell. You and I were taken out of darkness. Jesus stepped in and, and he brought us up and, and he took our sin and he took it up at the cross and he nailed it. And when he was at the cross, he not only nailed our sin and took our punishment at the cross, but then he rose again. Darkness and death could not have the last word. Colossians 2, chapter 13 through 15 remind us of who we are. And we were dead in our trespasses, in the uncircumcision of our flesh. That's where we were. We were dead. 
but God made us alive together with him. And how did he do it? Having forgiven us all our trespasses, all our sin, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And it was at the cross that Jesus had the ultimate battle where he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is what Jesus did. And because this is what Jesus did, this is who we now are in Christ. We are conquerors. So church, let God's mercy compel you. Let it compel you to go and tell. Go and tell of how dark your days were. Don't sugarcoat it. Let it be just as it is. Let those around you see your scars. What sin has cost you. How being a slave to Satan without you even knowing costed you almost your life and your family. Tell your story. Go and tell of the powerful mercy that Jesus laid over you. How he came. And when you least expected it, he, he, he pulled up and he saved you. When you weren't even calling out to him. His mercy saved you. He found you. And with the word of Jesus made you righteous. It made you free from condemnation. It made you free from shame. It, 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 it overwhelmed you to the point where now, even though you may struggle and you waffle here and there, you can look at Jesus, the one who, who not only stepped into your mess, nailed it to the cross, and now has resurrected, and now because of his resurrection, gives you forgiveness and life. Amen. Go and tell how the powerful deliverer has made you into a new creation and is still making you new. Thank you, Jesus, for your word and for the way it reminds us of you of who we were and of now who we are in you because your work has been done complete. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen.